We're going to start out. We're going to start out this morning in Psalm 18. Psalm 18. And I'm going to ask somebody to read Psalm 18, and it's 50 verses, so it's got to be somebody that really likes reading. So while you're giving that a preview and decide if you want to read, I'm going to study my notes so I know what it is I'm talking about. I confess I was talking. Psalm 18. That's good. That gives me an extra minute to... to uh, it is a long. Who would like to read Psalm 18? Karen. Karen. Karen would like to read Psalm 18. You were volunteered by Greg. Oh, volunteered me last week. Yeah, it's, it's a long psalm. Read the read the little. Uh, yeah. The director of music of David, the servant of the Lord. He sang to the Lord the words of his song, and the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. It trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering and canopy around him. The dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced, with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning enshrouded him. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster. The Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanliness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanliness of my hands in his sight. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against the truth. With my God, I can scale a wall. 
As for God, his ways is perfect. His way is perfect. The word of the law is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with his strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle, and my arms can bend above the bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great, broaden the path beneath me, so that my ankles do not turn. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow on my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, they did not answer. I beat them as fine as dust, born on the wind. I poured them out like mud on the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have made me the head of nations. People I did not know are subject to me. As soon as they hear me, they obey me. Foreigners cringe before me. They lose heart. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be God, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who subdues nations under me, who saves me from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From violent men you rescued me. Therefore I will praise you among the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to your name. He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So we read that uh, this is a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So we understand from that uh, superscription that this psalm was written in a transitionary period uh, pretty close to what we're going to look at this morning. In between First and Second Samuel, in 2 Samuel, at the very beginning, we looked last week uh, at the announcement of Saul's death to David when he was at Ziklag and his response to that. And what we're going to look at this morning is his ascension to the throne as king and the ensuing civil war that happens. And then after that are some of the battles that the deliverance of the Lord is going to talk about. Prior to David's um, wrestling with some moral issues. We'll, we'll uncover that a little bit later. So that's kind of a preview of where we're going. Um, who can tell me, okay, so I'm not going to recount the whole story of 1 Samuel, because I did that last week. But 1 Samuel ends with the death of Saul. Who can tell me what happened at the death of Saul? I mean, just what was the narrative account? What were the facts? Anybody remember the facts? Saul killed himself. Saul killed himself. What what happened? An Amalekite took credit for it and uh, brought the body back to David, uh, who then, hearing him, essentially confessed to regicide and executed. Yep. So an Amalekite who happened to just happened to be on the battlefield. Uh, and Saul, Saul laying there, took his crown and, uh, and brought it to David, probably trying, figuring, 
in the way of men, when there's a transition, when there's the death of a king and then a new king comes on, that's when people are going to make their power plays. And so it's interesting, I mean, how would we translate the death of a king and the, the rise of a new king? Well, we kind of go through that every four years in this country. Uh, we have a transition in government. Even if the same king stays in place, there's a, a, a wrestling for power. And so you see the Amalekite was trying to position himself in a, in a position where he would end up on the right side of power in his view of the way that the world works. And Saul and his, uh, his son Jonathan's body were, uh, they, they were beheaded because that was very common. They would take the head of the king and parade it around to show how powerful they were that uh, essentially their god was greater than their, the defeated person's god. And so they would take the, the head to the temple uh, of their god, and that's what they did. They took the head of Saul to the temple in Bethshan. We read about that in chapter 31 of the ending, closing of 1 Samuel. And then they took the bodies and nailed it to the walls of Bethshan. So Bethshan, if I had my map, I'll point to it. Bethshan right here. <laughs> Is uh, it's a city that's right at the edge of the uh, Jordan Valley. So the way that that Rift Valley works is that uh, a place called uh, Caesarea Philippi, up in the area of the tribe of Dan, very much north, uh, the water for the Jordan River comes gushing out of a rock. Right. So there's a it's a wonderful place to go. You actually get to see water shooting out at about six thousand gallons a minute. Uh, into, yeah, it's huge, uh, you know, it just, I mean, the, the river just starts, it's just like, boom, there it is, coming right out of the rock, and uh, it goes and flows down into uh, Lake Chinnereth, which we know as the Sea of Galilee, and just to the south of the Sea of Galilee, that then dumps down, it's now below sea level, and it starts going through the, the Jordan, or the Jordan River Valley, that's the Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea, and then at the Dead Sea it stops. So Beit Shan is just south of the Sea of Galilee, and it's kind of right on, uh, or access route, from the Jezreel Valley into the Jordan Valley. So it's a very strategic city, and it was a walled city, and it had not been defeated. Uh, in fact, it stood until Roman times as a walled city, and during Roman times there was an earthquake in around 750 A.D., that actually destroyed the city, and that was the end of, of that city. But uh, you can go there today, and you can see ruins going back uh, into a couple of centuries back B.C. So it was a very significant city, and that's where the Philistines took the body of Saul and Jonathan, and they nailed them to the wall. And we understand that there was some distant relatives of uh, the Benjamites, specifically the Gibeonites, and I made a reference last week to uh, the Gibeonites were a group of people that were in the land, in Palestine, or whatever we want to call that, the, the promised land, prior to the Hebrew children coming in under Joshua's command. So Joshua led the, the people into the promised land from uh, Moab, essentially, and they crossed in from the Jordan River Valley. They went uphill, so they were going uphill all the way to conquer this area. They came to the Benjamin Plateau, and there was a group of people that they saw what happened when Joshua went up against uh, them and how they were you know, soundly defeated. So they decided they would dress up 
as uh, yeah, dressed down. Yeah, they dressed down and looked like uh, you know, uh, yeah, vagabonds. And they would come and make a treaty with the Hebrew children. And so that's what they did. And, of course, that was against what Joshua was instructed. So they actually tricked him. But as a result, they stayed in the land. And that became the hometown of Saul, Gibeon. And it's right here on the map. <laughs> so, very strategic location. Well, there was also an area uh, for a group of people... Uh, that did not enter into the promised land. You recall that not all the tribes went in. The part of Manasseh and the tribe of Reuben never entered into the land. They actually stayed in the area today that is Jordan. And in occupying that area, they had a, uh, a distant relationship with these Gibeonites. And that area today is, or in that period of time, is called um, Gilead. It's kind of a high plateau. It was a good place for ranching, and, and uh, so Gilead and Bashan are in that area, and there was some relatives of the Gibeonites that built a city in Jabesh Gilead. And so what happened was, when the Benjamites in the time of the judges became disobedient, and they did something that was very reprehensible, and all the other tribes wanted to wipe them out. So... You know, the tribes of Dan, the tribes of Asher, the tribes of Naphtali. All these guys said, these Benjamites are just an offense to us. We're going to kill them all. So they went in and they, they were going to destroy the Benjamites. And they actually did uh, conquer them and defeat them. Even though the Benjamites were given this strategic location, they were wiped out by their own people. And this was a predecessor to a civil war, which we're going to read about now. Um, and... In doing that, they realized that they were wiping out their brothers. So they felt bad about that, and they said, well, let's get some distant relatives, these guys from Jabesh Gilead, and come in and mix with them as wives and repopulate the, the tribe of Benjamin. So the, all of that happens in the background prior to Saul ever coming on the scene. But all of that is important to who Saul is and what this place is, Jabesh Gilead, because there was an alliance between them. And it was both a blood alliance or a loose blood alliance as well as a, uh, a faithful alliance or a loyalty because when the Jabesh Gileadites were attacked by the Ammonites, Saul, if you recall, we looked at in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, he was the one that went against the Jabesh Gilead or the Ammonites and rescued Jabesh Gilead. You had a question? So was Saul a Benjamite? Saul was a Benjamite. Uh, and, but he was from that repopulated uh, area of Benjamin that was the mix of the original Gibeonites and the Jabesh Gileadites. And so he had, um, I don't know that anybody from Benjamin could claim pure blood as a result of what happened. You know, the Lord preserves his people, and there may actually have been some pure blood. Benjamites at that point that were descended from the tribes of Benjamin, but we have no record of it. Okay, so what? <laughs> All right, this is a bigger, bigger yep. picture question, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, so God made a covenant with Abraham. Yep. Okay. Who does that cover? <laughs> Who does that cover? That's a good question. You know, because of course it's a good question you asked. I mean, if they intermarried, I mean, ultimately mm -hmm. it might come to us. You know. And, and in fact, the uh, the 
Abraham covenant, Abrahamic covenant, was to more than just the direct descendants of Abraham. It was because he talks about the whole world being blessed. And that's in the language of the Abrahamic covenant. So it's not just limited to uh, a bloodline descendancy, the promise to Abraham. However, the king would come from the bloodline descendancy. From his seed, singular, all nations would be blessed. And it says that kings would come from him, from Abraham. And that's referring to the bloodline of David, who was uh, uh, mixed blood Moabitess and, and Judite, and uh, ultimately Messiah, Christ. So that's, that's for, we understand that now that's from this man's point. The whole world is Christ, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that Christ died for all. He didn't just die for the Hebrew nation. And so it's important that we understand that in when, when Sean was teaching about covenants, covenants have a larger implication than uh, many times. I mean, a covenant does four things. It establishes relationship uh, between two parties. It uh, establishes a promise between those two parties. Sometimes it's unilateral, sometimes it's bilateral. And then it has terms to fulfill that within the covenant, and then it has consequences or performance requirements. And so what you see, and all of those are present in all of this form of covenant, um, but when the relationship is established in a covenant, it can be both immediate and long-term, if that makes sense. So in one sense, the covenant with Abraham was immediate. He was talking immediately about his son of promise, Isaac. So there was a relationship established, and there was a promise made, and there were uh, unilateral terms associated with that. But it also has language that shows that it wasn't just immediate, but it was long-term broad scope. Does that answer your question? Sort of. Uh, So given that David's grandmother Mm -hmm. was Ruth Moabitess, Okay, which is sort of a mixed blood thing, if you want to say it that, that way. Well, right? they're, they're yeah, related to Abraham, but... Yeah, they're, they're probably all... Yeah, they're all Middle Eastern, they're all probably from Abraham. Because all Arabs were from Abraham. Well, that would have been the descendants of Lot, which was Abraham's uh, relative. So, uh, Moab and, and Ammon were descendants of Lot. Oh, mm-hmm. well, I thought they were all white. Um, well... Yeah, and then there, there's a so those are two of the parties that make up the Jordanian tribe today, is Moab and Ammon. In fact, the capital of uh, Jordan today is Amman, Jordan, after Ammon, and uh, the southern part of Jordan is Moab, and they call that the medieval plateau. It's a very fertile area. Further south in the area today, which is Petra, which is also in in Jordan is the area of Esau. And Esau was a descendant of Isaac uh, because Isaac had two children, Jacob and Esau. So that's how those tribes come into play there. And they all affected the, the tribes that did go in, that we understand are the descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes, um, as they left Egypt and then went into the Promised Land, or were supposed to. Okay, so final question. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. So, so if David's descendant 
is is Christ. Yep. How does that work? <laughs> because Joseph wasn't his father. Okay. Mary was his mother. Mm -hmm. But yeah, how do we are we calling calling Jesus the descendant of David in sort of by loose association? <laughs> Yeah. So they could both establish both uh, his legitimate right as king as a descendant of David. Yeah. The genealogies, yes. <clears throat> and this is a larger question which we should address at a later time. It's an important question and maybe around Christmas we could address that because it's usually fresh on people's mind. And I love the genealogies. Um, most people just kind of skip over them. But actually, one day I was sitting there and I, I read this book by Douglas Adams called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the, to the Galaxy. And uh, the whole book, series of six books, is about uh, trying to find the question to the answer. They know the answer up front. The answer is 42. But they don't know what the question is. <laughs> so it's a fun romp. You read six books trying to find out what's the question to which the answer is 42. Well, you go to the genealogy of Matthew and you find out what the question is. What is the key to life, the universe, and everything? It is found in 42 generations from Abraham to Christ. And that's listed in uh, three groups of 14. Three times 14 is 42. But you told and, me that those were not literal. Yeah, that's, that's, we'll talk about it Christmas. So, yeah. I, this, is, this is a great rabbit trail, but I can't go down at this point. But anyway, I, just, I love to point that out because the answer to life, the universe, and everything is Christ. And uh, it was actually captured in a secular writer, Douglas Adams. Uh, <laughs> that that uh, so I, I think I sort of answered your question all except for the yeah, last one. No, okay. Well, it's actually important because what you see playing out here ends up in a civil war as a result of uh, the tribes warring and having differences as to who's going to be their leader and an understanding of what the kingship really is. Who is the king of Israel? Who has a legitimate right to reign as king? Who has God chosen uh, as the leader of his people? And what are the characteristics of that person? And we've said that the, the heart of the king is uh, to accomplish the mission, which is to provide, protect, and to serve. Right. So we understand that that's what the king is called to do. We saw that Saul, who was um, anointed by God as a commander to deliver his people from their oppressors uh, was then chosen by the people as their king. But God had chosen another as their king and understand that David was anointed by Samuel as the king. And this happened at the same time that Saul was reigning uh, as the people's choice of king and as, God, as God's chosen commander. So we need to understand that, that Saul had a calling by God to perform for his people. So David recognized that. And David was not going to go against God. And when Saul was chasing him and trying to kill him, David said, far be it from me 
to raise my hand against God's anointed. Right? So he understood that even though Saul was not uh, behaving as king and had not been anointed as king in the same way that David had, he was still part of God's plan. And David allowed God to execute his timing, not David's timing, but God's timing, as to when in history God would manifest his plan to save his people and to put David forth as king. And one of the things that came out of our Bible study this uh, last Friday night was going through James, and we reflected on the verse, in uh, you find it in several places in the Bible, but we were looking at, at James chapter 4, and it talks about uh, humbling ourselves, and God will exalt us in his time. And I'm going to, you know, do you remember where it was, Mike? Um, oh, here it is, verse 10. Verse 10, 410. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And we have this idea of exaltation that has been corrupted by the world. Our idea of exaltation is that we're the big man on campus. We're important, we're powerful, um, and that God, in addition uh, to being important in this world, he chose us to be big and important. And that's how a lot of people would understand exaltation. You see the same uh, admonition in 1 Peter. And when we studied 1 Peter, I spent some time on this. 1 Peter 5, 6, it says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. The idea there of exaltation in God's economy, in God's kingdom, is that your put forth according to God's purpose. So when you have a heart after God, what you do is you follow him and submit to his authority to, to act in this world as his ambassador in any way that he chooses you. Right? So if he chooses you to be a school teacher, then he's exalting you in his kingdom to lead others into a greater understanding and knowledge. If he chooses you to be a bus driver, he has exalted you in his kingdom to care and serve and protect those that get on the bus. Right? All of us have a calling according to God's purpose. And it's really important to remember this. David got it. He got it that God had a purpose for his life and that that purpose would be put forth in God's time. And that's exactly what we see in the, in the New Testament where it says, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you at the proper time. David got it, Saul didn't. Saul was not humble and he was going to put himself forth. He was going to exalt himself rather than allowing God to put him forth according to his design. And Saul ended up in death. We saw in the first chapter of 2 Samuel that David, when he heard about that death, responded appropriately. How did David respond? Do you remember? He mourned. He mourned because he realized that God's perfect plan was not, not uh, evident. It was not realized in history. See, Saul had an opportunity to repent. Samuel made sure that that opportunity was available to him. But Saul didn't do it. In his own pride, he would not humble himself. And as a result, God could not put him forth. It's not that it was a punishment of Saul. 
it was a, a natural consequence. God couldn't work because Saul's heart wasn't right. And that's important to understand. We actually hinder God in executing his plan when we don't submit to him. It's important also to understand that God's plan is not foiled because of our disobedience. That he still accomplishes that which he sets out to do. And we have evidence of that all the way through scripture. And that's what's occurring now. God is going to use the events of the time to establish his kingdom through David and ultimately through Messiah, Christ. So we're going to take a big section this morning and we're going to read from chapter 2 through chapter 4. So we're going to read three chapters this morning. And the reason we're going to read three chapters is I'll probably have to comment on it next week because I tend to talk too much. But... Oh, well, okay, yeah, we'll talk about it when we get back from vacation, which I'll announce at the end of it. Um, I won't leave you hanging too long. Yeah, I won't leave you hanging too long. But I wanted to establish what's occurring here. So David has been presented with the information that Saul's been killed, so there is a vacuum in leadership right now. And he then consults the Lord to say, what should I do about this? And he obeys. We also then find out about what's happening elsewhere. What's happening in the north, up near Jabesh Gilead, and that area. And how a civil war will ensue. And then we're going to talk about that. I'm going to, I'll go ahead and read it. <clears throat> then it came about afterwards, that's after uh, David was confronted with the information about Saul's death, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, where shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. Now Hebron was the de facto capital of Judah at that point in time. And it's right here. <laughs> so, uh, so David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each from his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. So they're permanently relocating. That's one thing to point out. Then the men of Judah came, and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, It was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord, because you have shown this kindness to Saul your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you, because you have done this thing. There, now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So David's saying, um, this is the way God is playing out history in your presence. Um, you have an opportunity to be loyal. You were loyal to Saul. You have an opportunity to be loyal to me. But Abner, the son of Ner, I love that, Abner, son of Ner, Commander of Saul's army, Saul's army had taken Ibosheth, Ishbosheth, excuse me, uh, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manheim. Now, Manheim is just south of Jabesh Gilead. It's an area that was very significant. It was an area where Jacob, when he was coming back into the Promised Land, uh, stopped and wrestled with God. That was a place called Peniel, which means face of God, and Manheim is right near. Peniel. So this is a very significant spot. It was also near the Jabesh Gileadites. And what 
Abner did is he uh, brought Saul's uh, remaining son and made him king there. And he made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel, over Ephraim and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Now Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Manahim to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. So Gibeon is in the Benjamin Plateau. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met him by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, Now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. So they arose and went over by count, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and twelve for the servants of David. Each one of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called blah, 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 which is in Gibeon. So, so what happened here is that uh, they, rather than having a huge battle, they appointed representatives from each side. 12 on each side and they said let them fight it out and the outcome of the battle will be determined by these so that way we don't have to have a lot of bloodshed so that's what's going on that day the battle was very severe and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David now the three sons of Zeruiah Zeruiah were, uh, were there Joab and Abishai and Asheel and Ashiel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles, which is in the field. Ashahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Ashahel? And he said, It is I. So Abner said to him, Turn to your right or to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Ashahel was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Ashahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to the place where Ashahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab... And Abishai pursued Abner. And when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in front of Gaia, uh, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on the top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? How long will you refrain? refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers. Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in mourning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight any more. Abner and his men went through the Erebah all that night, so they crossed the Jordan, walking all morning, and came to Manahem. Then Joab returned from following Abner. When he had gathered all the people together, 
Nineteen of David's servants, besides Asahel, Asahel, were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many Benjamin and Ab, uh, many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that three hundred and sixty men died. And they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men went all night until the day dawned at Hebron. So I'm going to quickly summarize that for you. So they set up 12 on each side to fight a battle. It was not determined. In fact, all of those 24 died and killed each other. No one survived to claim victory for the other side. So a civil war did erupt. Yes, yes, that was the proposition, that last man standing, that, that their uh, side is the winner, but no one was left standing. So the two generals, Abner and Joab, said, okay, we're, you know, fight's on, and they immediately began a civil war. And in the course of that civil war, the general's uh, favorite brother died, and he was killed by the general on the other side. So that was Asahel. Yeah, how did the sword come out the back? Well, he took. He was running with his spear. Imagine this, okay? He got Joab, uh, the general, and he's running with his spear in his hand. And Asahel has fallen behind him. And uh, had it backwards. Abner, the general, is running. Asahel, uh, Joab's brother, is behind him. And he says, hey, I don't want to kill you, man. I know you. You're my brother. And that's important to understand. He recognizes that it's his brother in, in the larger sense of tribal uh, identity that he would be killing. So he recognizes this is a civil war. This is like what happened in this country where brother rose up against brother in the civil war. And he says, I don't want to kill you, but if you don't let off, I'm going to. So turn aside. Fight somebody else. And he won't let off. So as he's running, and Asherhel's running behind him, he waits till he gets close enough, and then he takes his spear, and he just goes backwards like that. Mm -hmm. And he strikes Asherhel, and it actually pierces him all the way through. That's the account that's given. So very graphic detail. And it says that Asherhel dies on the spot. That the, the wound is very severe, and it's uh, mortal. He collapses, and he dies. And that those that run after and come across the same spot, because you've got to remember, civil war, and these guys are running. This is hand warfare. Um, they come to that spot, and they stop, because they realize the gravity of what's happening, that we're involved in a civil war. We're killing our own brothers over the death of Saul. And that's, that's the, uh, uh, the picture that's being drawn here, is that finally the, the north gets to a hill, and they muster their forces. That's Abner and his army. And he musters all the forces of Israel, which is the northern kingdom. And he says, if you want to continue, this bloodshed is going to be horrific. We're going to create so much blood that you could fill this valley. And uh, the, the south, the Judahites, which is Joab, says, you know, that's absolutely correct. We need to stop this fighting right now. If you hadn't have said that, we would have continued to pursue you, and this battle would have continued to the very bitter end. But because you said that, I'm going to blow the horn, and I'm going to stop the armies, and we're going to walk away. It did not resolve the conflict, but it did stop the battle. 
And that's what happened in chapter 2. So we see that uh, Joab and his men went back, buried his brother in Bethlehem, and Abner and his men went back north to Manaheim, which became the capital at that point of the northern kingdom. Chapter 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So when it says now, that means some period of time. We know that it was at least two years. So some period of time, at least two years, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon, Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelite. <clears throat> and his second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth, Istrium, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David at Hebron. So we know that six kids are born, it was some period of time. We know that that period of time was about seven years. It came about while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Abner, remember, was a general. He was Saul's right-hand man. And he was very influential. So even though Saul died, Abner was still the most powerful man in the land. Now Saul had a concubine. Let me see. It came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone in to my father's concubine? So he accuses him of sexual immorality. Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David, and yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. May God do do so to you, uh, may God do so to Abner, and more also, if, as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of him. So that, that which I stumbled over, basically Abner is saying, what you just accused me of is absolutely horrid, to take the king's wife or concubine as my own. He doesn't deny it, interestingly, but he says, your accusation is totally wrong. Probably Abner was a, a very noble man. He didn't do it, and that's what he's saying. Um, but he's also saying that because you have had this view of me as a person, I am no longer going to serve you or your father's household. Rather, I'm going to work for your enemy, David. And that's a very significant saying. And as a result of that, Ishbosheth shut up. He said he couldn't answer him a word. Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. So he's saying, who has the political power to, to deliver this kingdom to you? It isn't Ishbosheth, it's me, Abner. 
He says, make an, an alliance with me and I'll give you the whole of the northern kingdom. And he said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing from you, namely, that you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. Now you recall that Michal was actually given to David as his wife, and that this was David's first wife. He had many wives. We'll talk about that later. Uh, and this was a wife that he, he loved Michal, and he actually went out and slew uh, a bunch of Philistines and brought a um, a bride price that many of us would be offended by today. But anyway, he says, I want you to, to bring Michal, my wife, because she was mine and taken away by Saul. Uh, so David sent messengers to Isbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Isbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Palatiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Bahrum. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. So he returned. So Ishbosheth gets his message from David, and he's not going to fight against David because his generals defected over to David's side. So he says, Well, okay, yeah, you can have her. And he then gives her, even though she's been remarried. And her husband says, Wow. This is totally wrong. So he's following, weeping, pleading for his wife and deliverance. And, uh, and finally Abner says, shut up, get out of here. That's what's going on here. <laughs> now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel saying, in times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David saying, by the hand of my servant David I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, and in addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel, and the whole house of Benjamin. So this man and his political influence goes to all of the tribal kings, and, uh, or tribal leaders, and he says, you know, David has been the, the king of promise. Even though Saul was our king, we need to align behind David, and he's very persuasive. And he persuades all of the northern kingdom, Israel, to follow David, including Benjamin, which was the, the tribe of Saul. Then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, Let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And he went in peace. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Third time. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away, and he is already gone? You know, Abner, the son of Ner, that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and your coming in and to find out all that you were doing. So Abner, the general of the northern kingdom, comes to David and he says, let's make, let's make a deal. I'll give you all of the uh, allegiance, the loyalty of those ten tribes that uh, you don't have. And... Uh, 
and we will serve you. And David says, let's do it, and sends him away in peace. Meanwhile, the general of the southern kingdom, David's general, shows up and he says, don't you realize this guy is just a crafty politician? He's trying to steal from you what's not his. He's trying to, to deceive you. You shouldn't have let him out of here alive. And that's who Joab is. Joab's heart is that he doesn't believe anybody. He doesn't believe that God can actually deliver the kingdom according to his promise to David. He rather believes that a kingdom has to be taken by force. Now Abner is a noble man. He may be politically astute, but he's not trying to take something by force. Um, he's offended by the leadership in the north and recognizes the promise to the leader in the south. And so he's bringing about a peaceful solution. And three times we heard that he was sent away in peace. But Ab or Joab, the general from the south, doesn't, doesn't get it. Don't you so think part of this is also that uh, uh, Abner killed Joab's brother. Yes, yeah. and that's that's what we're going to see is that uh, Joab still remembers that his brother was killed in this civil war. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you brought it up before, but Joab is David's cousin. Mm -hmm. I hadn't brought that up yet, but and David and Joab. Joab, Joab has a long leash for getting away with various outrages because David is his cousin. Yep. And these are some of the failures of David that we find out mm -hmm. later, some of the more subtle background that affects that. Um, and that you're supposed to do the right thing because it's right um, and not be influenced by the way of the world and, and connectedness and politics and things like that. You're supposed to do it because it's right. When God puts you in a position and he calls you to a task, you need to understand that that's God's calling. That uh, you may be in a position of influence, as Abner was, uh, but you still have a responsibility to God according to his calling. I will get through it. But yes. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm not quite to the Civil War yet. I'm still in 2-1. Okay. 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 But... Uh, I'm going to be gone for a couple weeks, so i got to get all my questions out now. Sure. All right. Now, I can't say that I'm yet a man after God's own heart, okay? That's, let's be honest here. <laughs> but my observation here is that David communes with God, and God communes with him. Yes. How cool is this? I mean, okay, so David inquired of the Lord, should I go up to the cities of Judah? The Lord said to him, go up. So David said, okay, so where should I go up? Yep. <laughs> he says, I mean, this is direct um, communication. Okay? Yep. And I would love to get this, but <laughs> do you have to be a man's man after God's own heart or a person after God's own heart to get this? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I mean, specific, this is very specific. Let me, let me put it this way. Um, say your wife is talking to you over and over and over again about one particular nit in your character that that she can see this could be real yeah this could be real and you hear it over and over and over again and it doesn't affect you at all because you don't really hear it you're not hearing it with your heart but then one day she says it and for whatever reason it penetrates your heart 
and you hear it. And as a result of hearing it, you change. That's what it means to be a person after God's heart. It isn't that God isn't speaking all the time. He's always speaking to Saul. He's always speaking to David. He's always speaking to us in a variety of different ways. He speaks to us through creation. He speaks to us through his word. How do we hear? When we hear... Well, no, I don't think... I disagree. I don't think that it does. Because God has given us an audible voice. When I read this, I hear the word of God playing in my head. I'm one of those readers that um, a lot of times I sound it out in my head. And I actually have a dialogue. That's scary. <laughs> I'm not telling you I'm a little crazy here. Well, maybe I am. But uh, the, the point is, is that God has spoken to us. And he couldn't make it more clear. That's what he says to Joab. Or Job, excuse me. Uh, Job is making his complaint. Now, Job is a man after God's heart. That's where it starts. Here's a man who fears the Lord and shuns evil, right? And then it talks about him being the prime witness and God being on trial. Is he good and can he be trusted? And he gets to the end and he says, okay, how come you put me on trial? This is just totally wrong. And God says, wherever you win, right? And God speaks to him. And Job says, I get it. I hear and he shuts up what does James tell us to do be quick to hear slow to speak quick to hear is a characteristic of one who is walking with God who is leaning into him who is trusting in him with their all of their heart right trust in louder louder so everybody can hear trust in the Lord with all your heart lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him He'll direct your paths, right? That's, that's a characteristic, that's a proverb of what it looks like when you have a heart after God. And that you're going to hear when he speaks to you. And you're going to seek what he has to say. And that's what David's doing. And the, you're actually stealing thunder here, but that's okay. Uh, this whole point, and the reason I'm taking such a large section this morning, which it looks like I'm probably not going to get through, but that's okay, um, is because... A contrast is set up between that first two verses and the rest of the way of the world that leads as far as to a civil war, the most uh, egregious and disturbing type of war that can occur is a civil war. How can it be a just war? Right? Now, you can, you can talk about that and justify on both sides, but... A civil war is horrific. We've been involved in civil wars uh, that are not our own, like when we went to, to Bosnia. That was a civil war that was occurring, that was over religious identification. And we participated in somebody else's civil war. We had one in our, of our own, and we may again. The United States is becoming more and more divided and it's scary, that division that's occurring. Um, you see it happening all over the world. These are the most worst kind of wars. I went to Rwanda in 19... Uh, well, I was, I was in there in 2005. So it was five, uh, 11 years after the, the genocide that occurred. That was a civil war. The Hutu and the Tutsi rose up and won uh, 
uh, more than a million people were killed in a hundred days. That's horrific. Uh, when I went there and the, they talked about the genocide because they say never again, right? Well, that's one generation. How can you impress that upon multiple generations that this is wrong? Uh, it's very difficult. We had the same thing happen with the Holocaust in World War II. Never again. And yet you see that same evil rising again. Right? What happens is, is that it, one of the survivors said, in that day, the day of the Civil War, when it erupted, 90% um, of the people were evil and did evil. 90%. Nine out of ten rose up and engaged in the Civil War. Of the remaining 10%, 5% were indifferent. They would not take part in one side or the other. They said, I'm going to remain neutral. And the other remaining 5%, five out of 100, actually acted to save life. They didn't ask, what tribe are you? Are you Hutu or are you Tutsi? They said, I want to save your life. You need, you need protection, I'll protect you at my own risk. 5%. So where would you fall in a civil war? That's what's going on here. You have a way of the world which people can make all sorts of political arguments about. And it can be as trivial as that your brother is, falls in this war, and as a result of that you commit murder. That's what Joab does. He's, there's, there's no need for him to do what he's doing. It isn't a matter of a battle and he's protecting himself. He seeks this guy out and kills him. That's what Joab does. That's the result of that spirit that's in the world. And we need to understand what the difference is between the spirit of the world and the spirit of God. And a person after God's heart is seeking God's heart. They're seeking what David did. Where shall I go up? What would you have me do? What is the right thing so that I can do it? He's already predecided. I'm going to do what is right. That is vitally important. And I say it's stealing thunder because this is a large section. It takes three chapters to establish the insidiousness of sin in the world. That's what's being developed here. It results in Ishbosheth's death. He's murdered because of political intrigue. I'm out of time, so I can jump ahead here. Um, you see in chapter 4, that's what happens. And it ends with the whole northern kingdom being uh, devoid of any kind of leadership. They basically have no choice. What I will say about this is that God can even use the horrific things of the world, like civil war, to bring about his plan. As long as there is a person after his heart that is seeking him. We're, we're called to join in what God is doing. It doesn't mean that we're perfect in that. So when you say, well, I would not say I'm a man after God's heart, I would disagree. I think you're actually looking. That's why you're here. That's why all of you are here. Either that or you're just bored this morning. I don't know. But <laughs> the, the fact that you want to know what God has to say and even if you only hear one word out of a thousand, that's one word. Hear that. Act on that. Um, 
So we'll, we'll close here because I didn't get through, sorry. And I was just trying to read. This is scary. Uh, we will rejoin this in a couple of weeks. Lord, uh, we thank you for what you're doing in our midst, that uh, you're truly touching our hearts with your word, that you are speaking to us and you're training our ear to hear. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we ask for more. We ask for your spirit to pour out of us, that we would become leaky in a way, uh, leaking you and your love, your goodness, your kindness, your spirit, your justice, um, your righteousness, Lord, which are we understand are, are uh, many times for us difficult when we're in correction. But Lord, we just ask that all of that would be um, poured into our hearts through your spirit, the spirit of truth, and that we would then pour that out to the world according to your calling. Lord, we just ask that you would teach us truly what humbleness and, and submission really is and how that plays out in the calling that you put upon our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to get together as your body. And uh, Lord, unify us and strengthen us. Lord, we ask that you would be with Bob as he delivers the message this morning. Uh, I know what a powerful weight that can be on people as they're uh, delivering your word. Lord, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would enable him, that the words that he speaks will be clearly yours, and that they'll continue to pierce our hearts. Lord, we just thank you for that. We ask for your protection, your hand upon us. Thank you so much for serving us um, so incredibly through your son, Jesus, we pray. We ask this all. Lord Jesus, ask that you be praised. In your name, amen.